turn to the book of First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter four. All right, last week, total silence in here. We hit upon the most profound passage in the New Testament on the subject of sexual morality. In fact, we spent the whole week talking about how to walk with God in a sexualized society. If you missed that message, uh, we encourage you to go to the website and listen to this because this directly confronts one of the most significant problems, not only facing our culture, but facing Christianity. And so just to look at this, chapter 4, verse 3, he says this, For this is the will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? All you have to do is read the next word. Your sanctification. God wants you set apart to him. To be sanctified literally means to be dedicated to set apart to God and his purposes. And he says specifically, you need to know what this looks like. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. God says, I want you to abstain from the Greek word porneia. Porneia is a really broad term. And it basically covers any sexual activity outside of the marriage of a husband and a wife is porneia. That could be adultery, premarital sex, incest, rape, uh, sodomy, whatever, homosexual expression, heterosexual expression. If it is outside the confines of marriage, it's porneia. It is exactly what God does not want you to do. You see, God is the creator of humanity. He's the one who created all good things. He created sex. He actually knows how it's best used within the covenant relationship to develop an essential ingredient to marriage. But if you misuse it, God says, I want you to understand how serious I take this. Look at verse 4. He says, so that each of you know how to possess his own vessel or your body. And I want you to handle yourself, he says, in sanctification and in honor. I want you to handle yourself honorably, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you don't know God, well, that's probably going to be reflected in your behavior, right? And we see it. It's rampant. But if you do know God, and that is the key to everything, why, you're going to want to live differently because the Spirit of God himself is calling you to that. And you need to know something else, verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So if you want to know what discipleship looked like with, with Paul, he was telling them, listen, Engaging in sexual morality is defrauding people. You're stealing from them. And furthermore, God is going to deal with it. He takes this matter very seriously because he created humanity in his own image. And so he says, verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If the activity is sexual in nature and it's outside the covenant relationship of marriage, it's immorality, it's sin, it's exactly what God has called you not to do. So what happens, though, if you trip and fall? What happens when we read these verses and you're like, ah, I am a, I'm kind of doing the exact opposite of what he's saying. What happens if you got sexual immorality issues in your past? 
Is there really hope and healing for those who have fallen into sin? Specifically, even sexual sin. Well, let me share you with you a scene from Jesus' ministry that answers this question. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 7 because we're going to spend our, the rest of our time in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Is there really hope and healing for those who have fallen into sin? Well, in this particular scene, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we find that there is a Pharisee. His name is Simon. We're going to see that a little bit later on. And verse 36 says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. And so we see a man by the name of Simon the Pharisee. He invites Jesus. Jesus is an esteemed rabbi. There is a lot of question as to who Jesus really is. Just to give you a little context in Luke 7, Luke 7 begins with Jesus actually healing the slave of a centurion. That certainly got a lot of people's attention. But right after that, beginning in verse 11, there is a funeral procession. A young man had died. They're carrying his body to bury it. And Jesus stops the procession. Can you imagine this? He literally calls the dead man back to life and presents him to his mother. Well, when something like this happened, look at the response. Verse 16, fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And verse 17 says, and it went viral. It went everywhere. People were talking about this. This Jesus had took a man who was dead and gave him his life back so for the pharisee simon perhaps he invited jesus this itinerant rabbi uh as a meritorious act as to invite jesus to your home that's what you would do with someone who is distinguished like jesus but it's very possible and the pharisees were very much interested to find out who jesus really is maybe simon was looking for a confrontation Maybe he was looking for some possible reasons why he could accuse Jesus of being a fraud. We don't know exactly what took place. We do know that Jesus goes to his home, but there's some things that are glaringly omitted in verse 36. You see, when you had a guest come into your home, especially a distinguished guest like Jesus, and coming into a home like Simon... Well, there's some things that you do. First of all, you would welcome the guests and you would take your hands and put them on the guest shoulder and then you would kiss both sides of their cheek. It is how they extended a warm welcome. Furthermore, the lowest servant in the house would come with a basin of water and a towel and they would wash the feet of your special guest. You see, the, the Jewish people saw, saw their feet as unclean and you're walking around out uh, on the roads, and of course there's animals, and animals, you know, you know, there's kind of have messes everywhere. It's dusty, it's dirty, and your feet were in it. But to come into a home as a special guest, your feet would be washed. And they would also then anoint you with just a little bit of olive oil, just as a sign of refreshment. But all of these things are glaringly omitted. And all we find is that immediately, Jesus has entered the Pharisee's house, and they're reclining at the table. Now, in the homes of well-to-do people, they had courtyards. And in these courtyards, it was kind of like a low-laying table. And this is how it worked. You actually would put your left arm, and you would lay down, and you would lean on your left arm onto the pillow, and you'd use your right hand 
to get the food and to dip into the different sauces. And you would all be kind of around the table with your feet going out like spokes. So you were kind of at the hub where your head was, where all the food was, and everything else, your feet were all around. And this is how they would converse and they would have their entire meal. Now, completely unlike our culture, most of you, us are not laying down and eating. You can do it, but most of us don't do it. But very unlike our culture, if there was a banquet at a well-to-do home, if you weren't invited, you still could come and watch this. You see, they didn't have Baylor basketball games to go to for entertainment. They didn't have the urban air trampoline park. It hadn't come yet to town. So what you did for entertainment, the ultimate, ultimate spectator sport, reality TV, was to go and be a spectator and watch a banquet. And you could listen in. You could see how they could interact. I even read one source where you could uh, like kind of beg, maybe use facial expressions like, I'm really hungry, and, I, and they could maybe throw some food. I don't even know what that would look like, but you were an observer. Now, you were supposed to be on the sideline. You weren't supposed to be making any noise. You weren't supposed to be talking. You really just looked in and you listened. Well, this is all taking place, and they're reclining at the table, and then suddenly something that shouldn't happen did, verse 37 and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. Uh, sinner. This is how the Jewish people referred to those who could not keep the law. Specifically, the moral law. They called immoral people, prostitutes, promiscuous people, Adulterers, they had one term for them, and they labeled them sinner. That's what they called them. And this woman is just that. You know, everybody knows who this woman is. She's the sinner, the immoral woman. It's kind of like if you've ever lived in a small town. You know, in a small town, like everybody knows your business. There are no secrets in a small town. They know everything you do, where you go, when you come home, everything. This woman, they knew all about her. She is the sinner. We don't know if she was just promiscuous. She was an adulterer. Uh, maybe she was a prostitute. Everybody knew who she was. In fact, she shouldn't have even been there. But she had learned. Perhaps she had actually been listening to Jesus in some of his public discourses. She, she obviously knew about him. She had learned that he was there. And so she comes. And she comes to the Pharisee's house. She's in the courtyard. And all of a sudden, look at this. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him. This alabaster vial. Women would wear this as kind of like decoration, kind of like you're wearing your necklace. And it would be this soft stone and inside would be this perfume. And it would be used for the most special of occasions. In fact, for many women, it represented all that they had. Their entire wealth they're wearing around their neck. And she stands up. This is a complete break of protocol. And do you see this? She actually is coming. She's standing behind Jesus at his feet. This would be like the equivalent of you running onto the court in the middle of an NBA game. You know, like, I mean, that would be like the whistles would be blowing. All sorts of security come and attack you, right? And they would drag you off because you're not supposed to be there. And you should have known that. That's what this woman does. She breaks all social protocol. She approaches. She comes out of the shadows. Everything grows silent. 
Here is this woman, the woman, the immoral woman, the sinner. And she is standing at the feet of Jesus and she literally comes unraveled. Look at this, verse 38. She's weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. It's like these tears are, they're just falling like raindrops. If you've ever experienced this or have seen someone that just completely comes undone, they're, they're just crying uncontrollably. And she probably didn't expect this to happen. And so she kept wiping them with the hair of her head. A woman's hair was always kept up. And a woman should never have her hair down, according to the Jewish custom, unless they were only in the presence of their husband. And yet she again breaks all social protocol. She wasn't planning on this to happen. She's, she sees Jesus' feet. Those tears would cause streaks on his dirty feet. You see, everybody knew Simon had not wash the feet of Jesus. They could see it. All the guests around in the courtyard, they all saw this. This woman sees this, and so she takes her hair, and she starts wiping the feet of Jesus. You see that? And she begins kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. I mean, you you see this scene, you're like, this is unbelievable. You see, the scene reveals that This dramatic expression of of love and gratitude and contrition and faith. You know, we could sum it up with one word. You know what we see here? The one word? It's worship. She literally is bowing down and she's expressing full and utter devotion to Jesus. In his book, What Good is God? Philip Yancey writes about being invited to speak at a conference of ministry to women in prostitution. And not only would you have people who had come out of prostitution and those who were ministering to prostitutes, but they actually had folks that were in prostitution at this conference. So after some discussion with his wife, and I'm sure there was some discussion as to, okay, help me understand, what are you doing at this conference here? Yancey agreed to accept the invitation, but he said this, as long as I could have an opportunity to question the women and I want to hear their stories. So at the end of the conference, Philip Yancey had some time, some time for questions. He had time for one more question. And he said this, quote, did you know that Jesus referred to your profession? Let me read you what he said. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. He was speaking to the religious authorities of his day. What do you think Jesus meant? Why did he single out prostitutes? dead silence for a couple of minutes and then there was a young woman from eastern europe she speaks with her very broken english and she says this everyone she has someone to look down on not us we are at the low our families they feel shame for us No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places, we are breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. Whore, slut, hooker, harlot. We feel it too. We are the bottom. And sometimes, when you are at the low, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. See, this woman, she not only understood how sin, her sin, 
had separated her from experiencing God and knowing God. But she also had come to an understanding, this Jesus, he could do something about that. He's the one. Well, you've got to imagine the scene. Utter silence. No one is saying anything, but people are thinking a lot, including Simon. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. He's like, I'm sure Simon is completely embarrassed this woman is even at his house. He's embarrassed for all of his guests. But he's looking at Jesus like, he sure isn't exhibiting a lot of prophetic discernment, is he? He must be a fraud. You got it right here. He doesn't know. And then Jesus suddenly changes the scenario. No one's saying anything. But you know, Jesus knows your thoughts. Do you know that? He actually knows what you're thinking. In fact, he knows all of your thoughts. And in this instance, he actually demonstrates this. This isn't the only time. He says this. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answered him. Simon didn't say anything. But Jesus answered him. "I, I know what you're thinking. And I know what you're asking. And so he said, Simon, what? I have something to say to you. And he replied, uh, well, okay, you might just lay it on me. Say it, teacher. And so Jesus begins with a story. So remember, you've got this woman weeping, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, anointing them with perfume. He says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Okay? So... Uh, a money lender, this was very common. You had people that lent money and they did so with interest. And it happens today. And in fact, there's banks and people that make a lot of money doing just this. Certainly was the case in the Jesus time. And you would charge interest and you made your money off the interest. There were wealthy landowners. And what they would do is they'd get people to farm their land. They were like sharecroppers, tenant farmers. And, but they would expect like a large percentage of the profit. And so what would happen is, that some of these people would be in debt. So being in debt, significant debt, wasn't uncommon. And so Jesus brings this to their attention. He said, you know what? There were two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Are any of you actually getting paid by denarii? I'd love to know. No one's doing that? Okay. You know what a denarii is, don't you? It's a Roman coin. It was worth a day's wages. Okay? So 500 denarii would be like the equivalent of about like two years. Of income, And 50 would be like about two months. So think about it. How much do you make in two months? What's that number? How much do you make in two years? Well, that's the debt we're talking here. They're both debtors. They can't pay. And so notice what he's saying here. Uh, verse 42. When they were unable to repay this money lender, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them? will love him more. Notice the word that Jesus used. He used the word to forgive. In fact, we still do it. If, you, if somebody like a bank is going to forgive your debt, what does that mean? It means they are going to bear the cost. This money lender, he is going to bear the cost of you not being able to repay 
What do you lend to you? And so Jesus asked, you know, which one is going to love him the most? So 43, Simon answered and said, hmm, well, <laughs> is this a trick question? I don't know. Okay, so I, I suppose, give himself a little wiggle room, the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you are a really sharp man. You have judged correctly. That's right. You see, if you were in debt and you can't pay, you know what they did is they threw them at what was called debtor's prison. And it was terrible. And it was meant to be terrible. And so hopefully you had family members that loved you and loved you enough that they would find the money. And that's the only way you got out. Right. And so that's what he, they could have. The moneylender could have put him in the debtor prison. They could have died there. But he graciously forgave them both. And so Jesus listens to the statement. And he said, you know what? You have judged correctly. And he says, you know, Something really surprising has happened here. Let me point some things out to you. Look at this. Verse 44, turning toward the woman. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? You know, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you know what? You didn't give me a kiss. No kiss. But she... Since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Verse 47. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, listen to this, which are many. Jesus knows all about it. He knows the who, the what, the why, her sins. There are many, which are, have, are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What he's saying is the, the result of her forgiveness and her understanding this, who I am, what I give, it leads to this great amounts of love and expression. Uh, she sees me for who I am. You, on the other hand, there's some questions that you need to be asking. See, in marked contrast, you didn't do any of the things. In fact, it's like kind of like if a distinguished guest came to your house and you didn't meet them at the door, you didn't shake their hand, you didn't take their coat, you didn't show them where they could wash up or go to the restroom, you didn't do any of that. In fact, you weren't even there. That's what's taking place. He says, Simon, do you, do you get the point? Has it dawned onto you that she expresses herself in this way because she knows who I am and she's experiencing the wonders of forgiveness. You, on the other hand, perhaps why you haven't expressed much love to me, in fact, you've expressed nothing but contempt, is it possible that you have little concept of your need for forgiveness and the forgiveness that I'm willing to bring to you? You see, if you don't see your sin, you really never see the need for the Savior. In fact, you just kind of go through life, jaded, prideful, very much like Simon the Pharisee. And so look at this, verse 48. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. This is what you need to know. Your sins, they have been forgiven. 
Now look at verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Who is this? Because only God can forgive sins. Can he do it? Is he the one who really takes away this debt? And then he says, verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not, your, not even uh, your expressions of bringing me ointment and the oil and your tears. No, not that. It's your faith, your reliance, your trust, your belief in me. That's what saves you. And when Jesus tells her, you're forgiven, I want you to go in peace. What he's doing, he's saying, I am establishing a whole new identity. You need to see yourself differently. You need to see yourself as forgiven in me. And he's saying this for the rest of everybody else, saying this for the benefit of everybody else. They all saw her as what? The sinner, the immoral woman. Jesus says, she has a new identity. She's in me. She's forgiven. And when he says, go in peace, it literally could be translated like, go into peace. It is to go into the shalom of God, peace with God. It's that profound peace that you can have with yourself, no matter what kind of wreckage you've got in your background. It is a peace knowing that God has forgiven you. It is a peace that comes into your soul that allows you to have confidence, that allows you to smile again, that allows you to move forward. He says, I want you to go into peace. I want you to go in my peace. And so he commissions. And now she's, he's finding He's saying, basically, go in my peace. Do you find your sense of identity, hope, joy, peace, hope in me? For I am everything to you. You see, Simon the Pharisee, he was really interested to know, who is this Jesus? Is he a prophet? And he found out, no, Jesus is far more. This is God incarnate. I want you to know something. Hope and healing come only to those who humble themselves and trust in Jesus. Are there some lessons that we can learn from this scene? Let me give you a few. Let me give you the first one. Pride holds us hostage to sin, but humility and faith in Christ set us free. Pride is kind of in part, kind of that futile attempt to ignore our own sins by concentrating on the sins of others. And what pride does in your life, arrogance, it, it blinds you spiritually. Because you then you can't see yourself, you can't see others as they are, uh, you become judgmental, and you most certainly don't see God. You never see Jesus because it's your arrogance, your self-sufficiency that keeps you from seeing him. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Simon, he just sees this woman and she's a sinner, writes her off, total judgmental. That's how he acts. And I've kind of been wondering, like, how did Simon end up a Pharisee? Well, probably he grew up in a Pharisaic home, don't you think? Probably mom and dad were, and he kind of followed suit. Maybe even upped the game a little bit. He obviously was a pretty prominent man. And then there's this woman. How did she end up, like, sexually promiscuous? The adulterer, the, uh, the prostitute, the fornicator. How, what happened there? Well, you know, when you, we look at women that go into prostitution, most of them have been abused as a, as a child. It's very likely that this woman is Jewish. She knows what Jewish honor is because she's even expressing it. She seems to understand that maybe there was a time in her life where she had a vibrant faith in God. Maybe there was a time she read the Psalms and it filled her with worship, but something happened and she went far, far, far away from God. Maybe she had been divorced 
You know, if you were a woman and you had been divorced, you had no means of income. Nothing. Unless your family would take you back in, you were out on your own. You then had to resort to begging or some other means. And some of these women, just as a means of survival, basically enslaved themselves into prostitution. And, you know, for this woman, she knew all about the stairs and all about the labels. She, she ran around with that scarlet letter all the time. Women that come into these situations where their immorality is so prevalent in their life, or they're a prostitute, or they have a pregnancy outside of marriage, they, they talk about the sense of shame and guilt. All their friends kind of forsake them. They walk around with this continual sense of judgment. I will tell you this. Sinful hearts express themselves in a wide variety of sinful ways. Both are sinners. Both are debtors. One has a strong perception and consciousness of their debt, of sin. The other, like Simon, not so much. But make no mistake, they're both sinners. Pride will hold you hostage to sin, but humility and faith in Christ, it will set you free. Humility accepts the truth of who we are. Humility puts us in a situation where we bow down and we see Jesus for who he is. Simon actually sees this woman expressing profound love and humility before Jesus, but we actually have no record that he ever followed suit. Hope and healing come only to those who humble themselves and trust in Jesus. I want to tell you something. You've got to be completely broken if you are going to experience salvation. You have to come to the end of yourselves. And it is a painful, painful process. I know from firsthand. And it is difficult and painful to see it in people's lives. But remember this, Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You're broken, you're crushed. You're, you're humiliated and you come with humiliation before the Lord while you're in a position to receive grace and salvation. Otherwise, pride holds you hostage. But you know, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came for the broken people. Did you know that? The broken ones. He said so. Like remember in Mark 2.17, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are, anybody know? Sick, right? I did not come to call the righteous. I came for the sinners. When do you go see the doctor? Generally, when you're, what? Sick. There is a problem. It is so bad that you have to go to see the doctor. Unless you're, you know, you're supposed to get your annual physical or decade physical, wherever you're at on that. But you generally go to the doctor when? It is, I am so broken and I'm in so much pain. This is bothering me so much. I will go see the doctor. Jesus says, when you see your sinfulness, then you'll come to me. And until then, you're ignoring it all. You stay far away. Pride holds you hostage. Let me give you another lesson we can learn from this life-changing scene. There is no such thing as free forgiveness. I know people like to say that, well, forgiveness is free. That's actually not true. There's no such thing as free forgiveness. You remember the moneylender? They were both were debtors, and so what did he do? He forgave the debt. That means he assumed the responsibility. Some people say, well, if God was really good and really loving, well, what he would have done is he said, everybody is forgiven. No need to send Jesus, your son, have him enter to humanity, have him to die brutally. No, no, we don't need to do that. God, if he was really good, he'd just say, everybody is forgiven. But it doesn't work that way. If you have a debt, someone has to pay. That's true of financially. 
That is true nationally. If you have a national debt, someone's got to pay. Where's this idea like, oh, we'll just wave a wand. It all goes away or it doesn't matter. Someone's going to pay. And if you have a debt of sin, someone's got to pay. Either you and you can't or Jesus pays in your place. See, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is required. Death has been provided. It's a free gift to you, but it costs God everything. It cost him his son. You see, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How do you and I really know that we are really forgiven? How do you know? If you see yourself as a debtor. Faith is taking God at his word. God says it. He told the woman, you're forgiven. Go in my peace. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Remember that? Do you believe? You're forgiven. In fact, the next verse, he says, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's why he sent his son. Not to judge, to provide salvation. You want it? It's costly. It's costly to God. It is free to you if you will only believe. Let me give you another life lesson we see here. All who are forgiven by Christ are called to live in his peace. Remember what he told the woman, verse 50? I want you to go in peace. My peace. Go into peace. Into shalom. I want you to know that you've got peace with God. You can be at peace with yourself. This whole idea of just tearing yourself up and living this inner turmoil. You know what I'm talking about? You're just twisting. I want you to go in peace. You know, when you're going in God's peace, you can find that even your past God uses for good. It not only conforms you to the image of Jesus, but you know what? God can use that as a ministry to others who are in desperate need of peace, who are experiencing brokenness and can find hope and healing in Jesus. That all comes when we trust in Jesus. You see, when you do so, when you really believe, no stigma, no shame, no guilt, you can lift your head high, you can smile once again, because you know why? Because Jesus has given you life. This is the gospel. The question is, will you believe? But when you're forgiven by Christ, he has called you and I to live in his peace. So there's something I want to know. If, you, uh, if you're really living in God's peace, you've experienced his forgiveness, you shouldn't end up like Simon the Pharisee. We're going to talk about this next week. But so often Christians are known for being judgmental. Especially on this area of, of sexual sin. You know what we need to be known for? Being gospel-centered. We are all about the hope in Jesus. You see, knowing the heart of Jesus leads us to express the love of Jesus to people in our lives. And let me give you finally one more life lesson. When you are forgiven much, you love much. When you are forgiven much, you love much. Those who understand the graciousness of forgiveness, they find within themselves this just like tremendous upsurge of gratitude. And it has to express itself. Sometimes this just amazing expression of gratitude expresses itself in ways that are extravagant, sometimes even expensive, but it must express itself. Because if you've been forgiven much, you will love much. And you always find this. The people that seem to have the greatest love for God, and it's evident not only by how they serve, but how they live and by how they give, 
you know why they do that? You really want to know why? It's because they've been forgiven so much and they know it and they believe it. That explains their behavior. Stuart Briscoe talks about in his early years when he was banking, uh, he had a friend of his who was a fellow banker and they had this discussion. And this banker guy said to Stuart, Stuart, I never go to the church because the church is like a banker's banquet, cold and correct, decorous and dead. Well, Stuart said, you know, often you're right. And I'll tell you why. Often in the church, there are people like you who don't understand your sin and have no perception of forgiveness. And he goes on to say, you know, if I don't understand the immensity of my sin, respectable as it is, religious as it has been, and it has not been reprobate, I don't understand my capacity for independence. I, if I don't understand my capacity for disobedience, I don't understand myself. If I don't understand my sin, there's no way I can understand the incredible grace of God in forgiving me. If I don't understand that, how will I be grateful? I will simply be cold and correct, decorous and dead, adhering to a religious system without any expressive love to the Lord Jesus at all. I'll tell you this. When you've been forgiven much, you love much. Randy Frazee is a pastor down in San Antonio. He speaks of a time where he was visiting a gentleman in his office, and he saw a picture of this guy and his wife. And he goes, hey, nice picture. And he, looks at, and he turns around and looks at the guy, and the guy's got tears coming out of his eyes. Like, oh, what do I do now? You know, he said, hey, what, why, why are you crying? He said, uh, there was a time in our marriage where I wasn't faithful to my wife. And, uh, and I, I got caught. God surfaced this. It was dramatic. It was painful. My wife was leaving me and taking the kids with her. And I was so deeply humbled. And I, I went to my wife and total brokenness. And I said... Would you be willing to forgive me? I, I don't deserve to have that question answered in the affirmative, but I'm, I'm asking, would you forgive me? And she did. And that picture, that picture was taken shortly after she forgave me. And so when you see the picture, you say, yeah, nice picture. When I see the picture, I see where I got my life back. And friends, that's what this scene is. This woman getting her life back. Better than ever. In the peace of God. And so as you go forward, are you to go in God's peace? Are you going to trust Christ and his salvation? And I'm talking about really believe. See yourself differently. Live differently. Are you going to live by faith and go in his peace? Or are you going to allow pride to continue to hold you hostage? And you're just going to continue on your hardened ways. I'll tell you this, hope and healing come only to those who humble themselves and trust in Jesus. If you have any question, is there really hope for the brokenhearted? Let me just point you to Jesus and say, absolutely yes. Let's pray.